three days, permits expire and legal options go out the window. I know about options, lot of assembly. Interest rates are going back up. And I'm paying a demolition crew to sit around eating in a restaurant they're supposed to be knocking down. Tonight, I'll have them out by tonight. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Please, somebody, help us. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Batteries Not Included, starring Hume Cronin. Not a word, not even in the post. Well, they're robots, right? They're, they're auto gyros, they're, they're smart bombs, they're, they're microchip hovercraft. They're spaceships. You could tell just by looking at them. Spaceships? Sure. Yeah. From a very small planet. Jessica Tandy. They're the fixers. They like to fix things. They have that knack. Frank McRae. Harry, you did that. We bring good things to life. Michael Carmine. I'm learning how Lacey works, how the city works. It's my way out of here. Where are you going? Anywhere. I'm smart. I'm talented. I get ideas all the time. Of course. Elizabeth Penner. I'm not superstitious. But I was thinking about these things. Why they came. It's like they were watching or listening. And Dennis Bootsikaris. Me and Faye. We needed help. Oh, you think that they're here because of you? The quickest way to end a miracle is to ask it why it is or what it wants. Directed by Matthew Robbins. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. We bring good things to life. It's Gally in Glasgow. Now, where's the goddamn toaster? There's Devlin in London. You never once asked to paint me nude. It's Patrick in London. Muriel and I say frog. Frog. It's Matt in South Korea. Welcome back, gang, and welcome back, listeners. Welcome back to another throwback. This one, we're back in 1987 again. It's no, the second in we? our 1987 trilogy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, don't, don't give away. Uh, you know, don't give away the shot next time. Um, but yeah, Patrick, <laughs> this is uh, this is your choice. Yeah, we're discussing batteries not included, which for many would have been uh, a really sweet, sensitive childhood memory of uh, days gone past yes it's days of yore mm, yeah oh, well you know i can't get everything right <laughs> <laughs> there's an odd kind of calling i've had to this film recently uh i worked on a film with um a lot of puppetry myself and i had to look after the puppeteers on it um there was seven of them just to try and not tell you what I worked on, but, but still telling you. And there's this really fantastic puppeteer called Robin Guyver, who um, did the work on Little Mermaid recently. And there may be referencing and things for the actors to, to play off of, but it's a, it was fantastic to work with him and his team and to see how that art is, is done. It's a really important thing on set. And it just got my interest in puppetry. And I really wanted to talk something with you guys about puppetry and, that, that, excuse me, that included puppetry, and I was trying to figure out what it was going to be. I flirted with the idea of Thunderbirds I go at one point to go <laughs> ex- explicitly in that mold. But then in the in the last year, it's been like 
I saw the poster for this film. I think Drew Struzan posted it himself. Um, and I was like, oh, God, that poster's so nice. There was, um, <clears throat> it kind of uh, reminded me of my grandma, who's, um, she's got Alzheimer's at the moment. And there, when I started looking into Bushes Not Included, I reminded of the main character, Faye, there. Uh, there was, um, there, there was, it was like a calling to this film for some reason. It, I, I can't explain it, but I just knew that this was going to be my, my next pick. It, there was, there was something else that I just found quite funny. Um, I feel like the navigator when we did that episode, yeah, that brought me to this as well. Um, and that's why I want to watch it. I remember watching it as a child with my grandma as well, actually. And this is something I watched quite a lot when I was younger. Uh, I think it was on VHS or something. And I remember very fondly, but I haven't seen it for a long time. Um, years ago, I, it's funny, isn't it? These, these films that you watch so much as a kid on again and again and again. And then... Um, I don't know whether you half forget about them, but they're, they're always there. And th- this one was for me. And that's, that's why, Gally. Um, it was really wanted to rewatch it. Um, that's my history with it. What's, but you've never seen it, Gally. Yeah, yeah. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Uh, I have not. No, um, <laughs> I thought, I thought I had. It was one of those where in my mind, uh, when you selected it, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, battery's not included. Maybe, uh, maybe I was also thinking about, um, you know, Christmas and the fact that I also had to get you know, batteries are still alive and kicking and needed around the world. Uh, Cause I also needed to find some batteries for my nephew's toys. Um, I thought I'd seen it. And then within, I would say a minute, I was like, nah, never seen this. Never, never know. And actually what was really quite surprising and on my watch was like, no way. I was just like all the names that were coming up in the credits. I was like, Mick Garris, Mick Garris, director of the TV version of The Stand. I've, I've got a real soft spot for. Goldies uh, 2, Critters 2, what did he do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Sleepwalkers, which is one of my favourite uh, Stephen King adaptations because it's uh, it's batshit. Good podcast as well. Yeah, I'm, I, I think we follow him on Twitter um, or we definitely mm. follow that podcast either way. Um, but yeah, Mick Garris, I saw um, Brad Bird, James Horner. Uh, so no history whatsoever. Yeah, what about you, uh, Matt? Any... Any history with this one? Uh, this is a film I watched regularly as a boy, but I didn't revisit it until I collected all my childhood favourites on DVD. I think I've mentioned it before. It was maybe around 2011. I threw out my bulky VHS collection. It's something we've all probably done at some point. And I cl- cleared the space under my old bed and I found everything I could find on on uh, DVDs and sort of lined my shelves with them and uh yeah it's and the other link is spielberg immediately because i again i've said it before but i used to think steven spielberg made all the films and like to be exact i thought spielberg kathleen kennedy and frank marshall made all the films because their names were on absolutely everything and uh we've talked about like maybe doing an ambling ambling around season i think we were going to call it and it would be really fun to do because E.T., Jaws, Gremlins, Arachnophobia, Harry and the Hendersons, Goonies, Back to the Future, Young Sherlock Holmes, Poltergeist, Inner Space, Hook, Jurassic Park, Twister. It just goes on and on and on. It's all the films I used to watch 
as a kid. I figured out loosely what a director actually did because you just sort of see these names, don't you? But you don't really know the difference between an executive producer and a, a director. Um, so along with Spielberg, it was Joe Dante and maybe Robert Zemeckis. They were the first directors that I knew um, back then. Uh, this was the second thing I watched in 2024. I rewatched it on New Year's Day for the first time in, it could be 13 years, it could be even longer because back when I, even when I collected those DVDs, some of them were just unopened on my shelf. I just wanted to have them. Um, so I was a bit hungover. I'd already cried at a Bruce Springsteen documentary. So I was a bit fragile when I watched this. So uh, that will probably reflect in some of my notes. And uh, yeah, how about you, Devlin? I'll, I'll pass it over to you. I also remember this being a TV staple i watched it a lot as a kid as well and weirdly this one came up quite recently that um it popped up on i assume five usa or one of the lesser channel five spin-offs and we we're kind of halfway through and it was on tv and um i remember just immediately lighting up and turning to kiara and pointing at it and in, in just in this total rush just explaining everything that was going on as like and then I remember thinking, we shouldn't watch this. We should turn it off. We should watch this properly. <laughs> and then and maybe it was only a couple of weeks later, we were in Big Asda's and uh, they were selling the DVD for a quid. So I bought it and it's been, sat on the sh it's been sat on the shelf ever since, still in the cellophane. And so this, Patrick, was the ideal opportunity to finally get around to it. Same, I think, probably as, as you, Matt, which is that list of ambling entertainment <laughs> features that you just rattled off would like that's the backbone of my childhood viewing habits augmented by absolutely sick shit i shouldn't have been watching at that age <laughs> <laughs> but that's the kind of pivot you need though right devs because I, I i had probably a similar thing obviously this it's all one about balance well no this one passed me by but i would watch sweet sweet saccharine goodness and i would mm. counterbalance that with all the stuff that my dad just was quite happy for me to watch which was uh, <laughs> outrageous uh, for my age but in a way what an incredible balanced human being i've become so, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll probably go into it a little more once we've gone through the plot in full but i think that it's interesting the era that this film looks at um and the the, the angle that it takes on the things that it brings up cocoon is the most interesting predecessor to this mm -hmm. film because it's almost immediately before and, and the same actors and to think what were the creatives first of all like who, is there an auteur to this or is this an is amblin the auteur are the sensibilities of spielberg as a producer suffusing everything but other creatives are, 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 are contributing but what I find interesting is that it's looking at a nostalgia for the 30s and 40s, which is the era that most of these people were born in, from the perspective of people who have just reached middle age, Spielberg, uh, Brad. Brad Bird, I think, would have been younger because he was just working on The Simpsons at this point, or pre-Simpsons, Brad Bird. But um, the, the director, Matthew Robbins, uh, uh, Joe Johnson, Mick Garris, they're all roughly the same age. These are people who have have been the enfant terrible. They've like gate crashed the industry as young kind of, you know, young kids with something to say. And they've reached the point that they're now the new establishment and they've got kids of their own. And they're probably starting to question, you know, 
what does the future hold for their rapidly aging parents? What is going to happen to their own kids when they themselves reach a, a stage of infirmity? What will be, is, is there anything that they're going to be able to leave or is modernity going to come through and sweep away the things that they achieved in the same way that they are seeing it happen to their parents' generation? That kind of like greatest generation boomer nostalgia, the 50s where everything's going really well was was being wiped off the map literally and figuratively and i think that um and we get that in the opening of the film in, in the, yeah. the imagery and and to think like all of that is is portrayed with such a kind of um an authenticity albeit it's quite simplistic that there does feel like it feels like that was a thing that they actually wanted to say and get on screen mm-hmm. as opposed to this just being a vehicle to get some little space monsters in and I think perhaps that's what's missing from some of the things that seek to only emulate the form of what comes before. It's like, you know, you can have a giant monster movie that means absolutely nothing, you know, or you can have a giant monster movie where it is heartfelt and representative of something that audiences can can really um, identify with. So I guess maybe it's, when you were saying about how the writing and, and creation process took longer and really did require a, a significant amount of, of time financing that maybe that was just, that's the thing that's missing. People have to give a shit beyond it just being like career maintenance. Mm. Like that yeah. development that you said though, I, I like about this is that it's, and I rewatched a couple of them recently. Do you, do you remember the amazing stories? Um, Spielberg's amazing yes. stories series. Mm-hmm. I've yeah. got the first series on box set. I haven't got the second and I bought it years ago to have a rewatch and I haven't got round to it till this week. And I watched, um, the director, Matthew Robbins's um, short film, uh, main attraction, which is fun. And, and it has something coming down from the sky and affecting a young man's life, which is, something in there and brad bird you know he he was writing rambling um for amazing stories at the time as well and when you consider where he went on to there's a there's a style for him i think well i didn't remember them much from from when they were on did you watch them when they were on anyone or it was 18 well i remember them in the 90s as a kid because i remember the um Oh god, the short film with um the plane and and the crash land the plane but they put the the animated wheels on it because someone it's got yeah, Kevin it's called Costa, the mission the mission and, it, and Donald uh, Spielberg directed that and Costner's in it uh, Kiefer oh, wow. Sutherland it, for many years I thought it was called Memphis Bell which is another film which is really great it's another film yeah but this blew I remember it blowing my mind at the time and I thought it was the most wonderful thing I'd ever seen what film is the the mission uh, it's forty four minutes amazing stories it's it's an incredible film really short film really. Uh, and it always stayed, stayed with me for years. And this was supposed to be a short story for amazing stories. And um, that thing, Gally, there that this was developed properly, Dev. This was, te- they took their time and Spielberg really liked it and he wanted it to be a film. So, you know, produced it as a film. Was it ever written in a shorter form? Do you know? Or yeah, was it, it always? Apparently it was. Yeah. And it was a short story and they've fleshed it out. And I think, well, one of the other telling things to take the time and they saw something in it was it, it took a year for them to find the building, the appropriate location. They scouted it and until they were happy and to use that time properly to develop the story in the film and add that this, there's many elements in this film. It, it comes more from the idea of amazing stories, I think, like because if yeah. they're so strange and un- unusual. I, I, I think Spielberg only directed 
a couple. Uh, I can't, I can't remember his other one. It was something to do with, um, uh, I, I always thought it was a haunted house or some kind of, uh, old people's home, but it wasn't, it was, uh, I was looking it up today. There's two Spielbergs and there's two Joe Dante's and Joe Dante's one is, it sounds great. There's a, a porn star, Wendy Schall, who's actually in batteries, not included a little bit. She was also in, um, uh, all Joe Dante's other stuff. She's, uh, Mrs. Rumsfield in, uh, the Burbs. And she's oh, yeah. uh, in Inner Space uh, as well. And Robert Picardo, who's in all of the Joe Dante stuff, they move into a, a house, a haunted house. And that's a, quite a memorable one. And Dante's other one was uh, where they encounter this furry creature voiced by Frank Welker, who we discussed in Gremlins and Species, I think. And uh, the, the creature has a taste for inanimate objects, it says here, and causes havoc. And Dick Miller's <laughs> in it. So I, I think, and if, if you if you scroll through, like, the directors and the cast of Amazing Stories, it makes you want to really dip in and, mm. and watch them. With all of that in mind, do you want to have a look at the cinematic box office landscape of the time to see what actually was around that Batteries Not Including was... Um, competing with i i do patrick but i need a title join me then galley on this week's top of the box yes yeah top of the box this week coming in hot at number 10 um oh, the, tony blackburn's joined <laughs> us oh, amazing <laughs> well this is of course the domestic u.s box office and this is the week december 18th to 20th 1987 so this was a christmas release where firstly i suppose where do you think batteries not included uh opened top five it came in at three <laughs> i would say three it was a new it came in a new entry not three. Four. It was, came in at number four. Bantry's not included with a, a return of $3.3 million in its opening week. Oh, they were the days, weren't they? That was seen as success. Not bad. Well, the, the number one for that week made $9 million. Um, and number 10, 10 and 9, I've never heard of. Part six of something that IMDb has a score of 2.2 out of 10 on. It stars Bill Cosby. Oh, it's Leonard Part Six. It's not actually a Part Six. Film, six. The film is yeah. just Leonard Part Six. That's how much you knew about that one. <laughs> yeah, well done, Dev. Uh, yeah, Leonard Part Six, which looks shit. Nobody's going to watch it these days, with good reason. Yeah, number nine. Never heard of it. It's a West thriller, <laughs> Western, starring Barbara Streisand and Richard Drake. Interesting. Leslie Nielsen's in it. What? Eli Wallach. Oh, man, it sounds like a genuine Western that I need to watch. <laughs> right, let's get the... A high-class call girl accused of murder fights for the right to stand trial rather than be declared mentally incompetent. And no one's going to believe Streisand is a high-class call girl. <laughs> <laughs> the title is... Nuts. Going in at number eight. We've, uh, we like 1987. We've done this film before. It's got Galley's favorite actor in it. Oh, Fatal Attraction. Fatal, Fatal Attraction. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, number seven. This, oh, it's a film I remember quite well when I was young. Um, it stars Goldie Horn and Kurt Russell. Overboard. Overboard. <laughs> uh, number six is I want a fucking car right fucking Planes, now. trains. And automobiles, yes, correct. Which was four. And Sorry about the foul language lessons. Batteries, not included. I am just quoting a film. No, no, number five, <laughs> Money Talks. Wall Street. Wall Street. Number four, Batteries, not included. Number three. Oh, wow. Um, Danny DeVito and Biddy Crystal. Throw Mama from the train. Throw <laughs> Mama from the train. Goonies' <laughs> mum. Yes, yeah. Mrs. Fratelli. 
In at number two, um, the the so-called star of Police Academy. We discussed him. Oh, three three men and a little baby. Three men and a baby. And in at number one, nine million for the week. But it stars a very famous comedian uh, in the late eighties, and it. It's a, it's a stand-up. Oh, is it Raw? Is it Eddie Murphy's Raw? By oh, Eddie wow. Murphy. That was number one. Wow. It is a real film. It's got Samuel L. Jackson. I knew Raw was a was a hit. I didn't, I didn't realize it was it number was, one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially at Christmas one. time. Right, no, cheers. Uh, cheers to that, Patrick. That was, uh, that was good. That was good. Something that we will, we will do for decades and years that we can actually have a, a fighting <laughs> chance, right? Right, well, we've talked uh, long enough about it but we don't know what it's about. Um, so, uh, Patrick, why don't you remind us and the listeners of the story to Batteries Not Included. Faye and Frank Riley live at and run a cafe in an old apartment block in New York's dilapidated East Village. Corporate fat cat Lacey is trying to buy them off and the other residents in order to destroy the building and build a new high-rise complex in the neighbourhood. Lacey has employed Carlos, a local vandal for hire, to intimidate and bribe the residents to leave along with his gang and he smashes up the cafe with his baseball bat. He also breaks pregnant Marissa's ornament with the Virgin Mary. Artist Mason's door and caretaker Harry's jar of tiles. Sid and Muriel, Frank and Faye's best friends, can't take it anymore. So they take the money and they leave as Frank laments in the situation and his wife Faye's ever-growing dementia. He prays for help from somebody, anybody. That night, a pair of auspicious small living spaceships explore the building, fixing all of the things Carlos broke, including the cafe, and recharge at an electrical point before taking up residence in the rooftop shed. Faye takes them quickly, as Frank and the other residents trepidatiously approach. If this is a dream, then which one is having it? Carlos sees the fixed cafe and demands to know who helped them. Faye is confused and keeps thinking he is her son Bobby and the fixers terrorise and send him packing, the residents coming together. The two fixers bless their new house by making love, and the residents ensure they have an electrical feed and random metal foods, as the female is pregnant and hungry. A romance is also blossoming between Marissa and Mason. She's seemingly allured by the idea of an artist, and they all contemplate what or who the fixers are here for. But the quickest way to end a miracle is to ask it why it is. Or what it wants. The female fixer gives birth to twins, but then a third child is sadly stillborn. Batteries not included. Faye respectfully buries the body. Harry, who speaks little, has other plans though. Digging it up and rushing it to his apartment to fix the little guy, bringing them back to life, and trains the little one with a dog whistle. Business is booming again in the cafe, the fixer's helping too. Faye mistakes a frustrated Carlos for her son Bobby once more, and he says he wants to get out of the city before running off to Lacey and begging him for another chance to clear out the residence. But Lacey has a backup plan to assure it happens, and fast. The Fixer family reunite with the alive-again third child, but that night, Carlos hits the water supply and smashes the electrical output. The residents and Fixers go to fix it, but Carlos wounds the father badly. The three fixed children flee as the mother tries to fix the father and Harry kicks Carlos out. Faye confusedly argues with Frank over Bobby, who we discover has been dead all this time, and hides in her apartment 
while the other residents go to where there's loads of electricity, Times Square. Harry finding the little one with the aid of his dog whistle training, and thankfully the father is saved. But mother and father are wary now after the attack, and they leave the planet as a family. Meanwhile, a lacy-hired arsonist has also sabotaged the building, staging a fire, but Faye is still in the apartment. Carlos goes to save her, but Faye still thinks he's Bobby. So Carlos decides this time to play along. But at the mention of his car, Faye has a moment of clarity and sees Carlos for who he is. Carlos has to drag her out just in time, the other residents returning to see the building ablaze and falling apart, crumbling beyond repair. Lacey has won. The Fixer family and many more make one last visit to the building, returning it to its former glory to stand proudly between the newly developed site forevermore. Just around the corner, there's a rainbow in the sky. So let's have another cup of coffee and let's have another piece of pie. Oh, the singing was for free. Thank you very much, Patrick. (laughs) (laughs) Quite telling that um, this is a story time which I would imagine was relatively straightforward to put together on account of how the script for this is extremely tight. And yeah, tight. but it, but there's a lot of things happened. There, there was things, and there there is depth to it. But I sometimes struggle with the story time of like getting too involved in it and trying to just figure out actually. And I, I was amazed by how much I started to write the story from the the fixer's point of view as it's their okay. tale. Yeah, uh, yeah. which was quite, I thought that was quite telling this time around, which was quite nice actually. And Faye starts the film and ends the film, and she is like, "Who's the main character?" It, it's an it's an interesting one, but there's a definite economy, Devlin, isn't there? The the opening, um, which reminded a lot of people that I saw of Up, and I, I can't I can't um, discredit the the connection with Brad Bird and whether he had any sayings in Up, but. I, I like the photo montage, the telling of the history of the building and the family, and then the, the horn of music's really nice. And when it turns to the uh, to, to the sorrow of everything crumbling around it, and it being the last standing building, it's a very um. I, I'm a sucker for storytelling through images and music and sound. Like, Those photo composites are better than the modern ones. Did you not think? <laughs> I mean, they're still, they're still, you know, um, have their problems at the time, but they, they tell a lovely little story to start us off. It's very evocative and actually, um, it, it points to something that we've, we've mentioned before about, um, opening credits, you know, you see some filmmakers that don't exploit them they're bring yeah they're bringing you up to the last yeah the last possible moment that you want to jump into a story you don't want to mm. jump into a story all the way back when we're watching the you know we don't want to have to have scenes where we see the the cafe falling on hard times and the residents leaving we want to be like uh, it dropped into the story at the last possible moment to start the drama can i be a contrarian already uh, i don't i don't like opening title sequences where we're asked to read people's names on the screen while the story's being told. I like opening title sequences. Um, for example, something like Seven would be a great example. It's not re- it's telling a story in a way. It's giving us images. And like Gally said, it's setting a tone. I think what happens when, when we're being shown images at the same time as, as names on screen is that we're told almost subconsciously that the images aren't important because if they were that important, then they wouldn't be also asking us to to read people's names which no one does anyway so probably moaning about nothing but that's that's my two cents well i like i like the the montage of images as well because there is 
a strong element of Faye and memory in this. And this is how she remembers everything and she can't get away from that and struggling to accept the modern world and, and the changes around her. And there's an interesting little uh, duality with Frank when he, 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 he can't remember who Marissa and Mason are. And she's like, Oh, you're in the old Muscovitz building. Yeah. Who are you? Which is quite interesting, but. I, I found the names very easy to get in this. Um, I think the costume design is really well done to highlight which individual characters in here as well. I, I didn't have a problem with it. I, I see your point, Matt. I I never thought of it before, to, to, to be honest. And that theme, Patrick, that you mentioned, as I said before, it runs through all the characters and 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 I think that's the strongest element of the film is that the, because it's so universal as well. I was trying to think about like what it was that that was really appealing to me about the film once I'd watched it, and it was like, well, everyone has, and and we see it with the and again the aliens or the fix the fixers. It's like when you set roots somewhere, you have an attachment to it, mm. and. We all, you know, we talk, we talk, we do a show, a podcast about films that we loved, and we are always thinking about, we were smiling, even when it's a terrible film. We're always smiling and thinking about where we were when we first saw it, or, and it evokes all these kind of memories. And I think it's a lovely, it's a lovely way of kind of portraying that and the kind of tragic nature of time passing and memories fading. And it, you know, these things being in a capsule with a character like Faye and, and Matt says, you know, they, they don't explicitly say it could be dementia. It could be Alzheimer's. It could be forgetfulness. They don't need to say. And I also think the way that they handle her means that that really wraps around everything else. But the dilapidation of the building and also the way her mind is deteriorating. It's all, it's all, and I like, I, we talk about sense of place. Devlin often mentions it. And I think this is, has a particularly good one. And I, one of the things I wrote down was that it feels like a Brooklyn film. It feels like a do the right thing or a requiem, requiem for a dream or vampire in Brooklyn. No, I'm joking on the last one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the location is very important here, isn't it? It's, mm. it's a character itself, the building and the, and the place. And they were, they were able to put the physical work in to actually make it believable like mm. it, it, it's believable up until the points when it's kind of adorably theatrical which is the entire rooftop set with the backdrops and the yeah buildings yeah and the miniature buildings <laughs> yeah. and stuff and it's the lighting super, setups like, yeah it's and kind harry of at the uh times square sand the the, yeah. the backdrop there's beautifully painted it's really amazing but it's you know the, to physically build that entire edifice and to have it you had to have it at the right place with the you know the new skyscrapers kind of looming over it it it, it wouldn't have worked if you were if you didn't have that sort of that gritty physicality to it and i think that one thing that the film has in abundance is tremendous spatial geography throughout i think that it's not um it's not particularly massively dynamic film like it doesn't have a lot of complicated geography to to deal with but it navigates that building so well you understand you know um harry's level you understand that you've got the basement with the pipes and the stuff and then you understand that you go up from the cafe up through the additional floors and um i don't know it's, it, there was something about that that when you're in the hands of a steady director like that a film that is this kind of sweet natured, really. It it really helps to have that kind of calm guiding hand. It might be that Matthew Robbins may not have been the most um, exciting director they could have picked for this. Uh, when you think about the ways that Spielberg is famous for um, 
famous for his camera maneuvers and famous for being able to um not just competently navigate a space but kind of add two three levels of emotional response to it as well this didn't quite hit those heights but i do think that it was extremely solid really good um blocking and use of the, the the characters often they would get all of the main characters in one single frame and i also think that um uh forgive me uh, is it tandy uh who plays Jessica Faye? Tandy. yeah it, it could be so easy to kind of fall into a slightly caricature version or a or a or a sense of like playing it too childlike to the point of either annoyance or you know, slightly, you don't want to say disrespectful, but like, oh, come on. I think there is an element of that with, with her and her performance, but it, it's, it's, I think you're right. It does tread a line. It's, it's very endearing and she plays it very well. And she's, it, it, it does it well, especially against Frank and then Sid Amiral at the beginning. We, um, and the Bobby confusion, like, it's funny. I, I do want to talk about that a little bit more, and I think Matt does. And it it's an interesting plot point. Um, her her state of mind, and her her I'll, I'll call it illness. You know, and the difficulties of those around it. Is is that something that contributed to Sid and Muriel leaving as well? I, I don't know, but people do struggle with, with family members with this, and I see that them going off to the the retirement community as as an element of dealing with a family member who has dementia or Alzheimer's. And uh, my my grandma has it at the minute. My mum, you know, I, God love her. She's um, for want of a better phrase, like looking after her. And they've contemplated, you know, retirement homes and things. And I, I, I would like to know what my mum thinks of this because she said to me the other day, um, the father, sorry, Anthony Hopkins, she said that's the best portrayal of it and, and people dealing with and living with and trying to make um, the, the best situation as they, as they can for both uh, the relative and themselves looking after the relative. And I, I want to watch that just to kind of compare the two. But it... Frank's the way Frank plays off of Faye, I think is quite beautifully done in some scenes. That the giving of the medicine, that that scene is heartbreaking. It really, uh, really gets to me. And the way she plays off Carlos and Carlos, um, yeah, your man, uh, Michael um, Carmine, and it's the two. Uh, the contrast between somebody who is unfamiliar with it and then someone who's familiar with it and and looking after a loved one. And I, I think it's well done overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I thought it was treated very respectfully. And yeah. in terms of what Gally was saying about her being childlike and, and she's sort of walking that line, the, the initial stages of these things can be quite humorous. And mm. um when it is just someone being forgetful or mixing up their words or something like that. But as as time passes, it becomes anything but. And the film reflected it quite honestly, I think. Uh, I've got some first-hand experience with it. I hope nobody minds me talking about it out there. But uh, my dad's mum had Alzheimer's and she was in a nursing home. Uh, Couldn't couldn't remember who my dad was. Uh, And then my my granddad on on my mum's side was just forgetful, you know, and they said that it could be early stages. Uh, he he died at 81, uh, but I think it would have progressed if he, if he hadn't died. It would have it would have got worse. So, you know, you wonder how it would have gone. But um, I, I think 
it it tapped into to a lot of very real heavy things that are quite upsetting mm-hmm. in, in spite of it being quite joy it's it's a joyful film it's a nice film it's a pleasant film but it has these uh moments uh that going from the lightly comedic all the way to the to the tragic the bobby stuff that you mentioned but again i i didn't ever feel like it was i was being manipulated too badly i, I felt um people who people who do have personal experience with this are going to be hit harder than than anyone else but um th- that that doesn't mean that it's uh it's exploitative i don't think I, th- I think they walked that line quite nicely i'm gonna clean up that cafe frank i'm gonna clean it up right now oh <laughs> well maybe first thing in the morning you don't have to worry about a thing Okay? Okay. Just around the corner, there's a rainbow in the sky. So, let's have another cup of coffee and let's have another piece of pie. Did we miss the sunset? Yeah, I agree, Matt. And again, not to overshare, but um, just so you you're all aware, my, my nan uh, before she passed, she, she had dementia, and she had a dementia for the best part of nine, ten years. Couldn't remember mm. me um, in the last couple of years, and and again, it's heartbreaking. And and that's why I'm I'm saying that I I thought she did a, a really good job because in a way, what do you want a film to do, especially if you're going to use um, uh, a character's condition uh, as kind of like a central. Uh, puzzle piece in a, in a larger a larger picture um do you want them to be a kind of functioning piece that also drives theme which i think is what they they use Faye for mm-hmm. and use it well she's almost like the heart of the film what we don't want to see or what i don't think would be a very good idea and potentially something like the father is because that's a film that's saying right we're going to show show it warts and all it's the, that's the that is what the film is about this mm-hmm. is about something about almost reclaiming memory and the importance of also mm. preserving preserving things that are important to people, like home. You know, home is what you make of it. And for all these desperate characters, this is their home. Uh, my my um, grandma used to light up sometimes. You know, her face would just light up and there would be a moment of recognition. And it, it's almost as if that it's it's an allegorical story for... I mean, it's not too allegorical because it's kind of on, on the nose if it is, but... Uh, it, it's talking specifically about dementia, like the entire film. You can read or read it into almost every every scene that happens. With Frank, it seems to be clinging to like the autonomy of his life. He doesn't have dementia, but he's been forced out. Um, Faye is being forced out through her uh, Alzheimer's or whatever it may be. Frank's still got his marbles, but he's still being pushed out. So there's this sense that you. Uh, these films about elderly people are incredibly rare. I, I don't remember seeing anything like this, particularly as a, as a kid. So that was interesting. Mm. But they're they're all being nudged out of their out of their lives and the things that they know and understand, whether they like it or not, in the, in these different forms. I like I like the allegorical metaphorical sense that they're at breaking point with the fixers coming and that. Uh, I think that's just it's a very subtle but 
clever a thing miraculous that, that, element uh, that's that's coming in yeah, and a miracle yeah it, it, it's he, he says doesn't he like please someone help and it's very classically written that way the character's taken to the breaking point and something amazing happens to... but do you find that really melancholy too patrick because we know that there are no fixes and we know that these miracle i mean a lot of people believe in miracles and, and you can get into religion and things the story then is really about coming together as a community and facing something together it's about togetherness and it, it's who, who's fixing who you know does marissa fix mason does mason fix marissa i like that element yeah. to it if the fixes aren't real matt but the fantastical element is giving us something wonderful to to watch because my worry when i was watching it for the first time patch was like i hope they don't make this like 10 minute thing where they're just going yeah she's she's lost her marbles kind mm. of thing it was like no they immediately mm. go straight from no it's mm. them what's them and then they're up on the roof and I also didn't think we would see hardware into software into newware, uh, but I just said uh, that's a little uh, sexual innuendo there using some IT references. Uh, I was not expecting the aliens to start procreating. I must say it was, that was a real one of me. It's beautifully done though. It, it reminded me of the, I'll call it love scene in Wally where Evie and uh, Wally dance together in the in the space. It's not mm. explicitly a sex scene, but it it mm. reminded me of that when they come out of the chimney and there's a smoke and there's. Well, they always say it's like a bolt of lightning. You know, it's like electricity, chemistry, all these things. And uh, yeah, so it is just in a tool shed. So uh... <laughs> with that state of mind, there's two characters in the film that have um, an illness, and Harry is potentially the other one from many years of boxing that he is largely unspoken in the film and can only recite things from that he watches on the television. There's a nice bit of exposition when Frank says, I used to bet on him in the boxing, but he only watches TV and loves the commercials. When I was a boy, he was my favourite. Oh, yeah, Matt, I remember cheering when he put the boxing gloves on when yeah. I was a kid, thinking, yes, this is this is fun, this is amazing, you know, and him standing up for himself and, and coming, because we start off, he hides behind a curtain and then for yeah. him to go full circle. And, and I remembered all of that with the behind the curtain, with, with the, the tiles that were broken. Yes. Um, strange images in this film. I'm going to do it in favourite shots and stuff, but uh, certain things came back so vividly and that must yeah. be great filmmaking in a way. It must be. Mm. Yeah. Him putting uh, on and, the gloves and, was an everlasting image for yeah. me. But as a kid, he was my favourite. I think there was the mystique to him and uh, a kind of uh, an alien aspect to him. Like I wrote this thing about diversity, but it's like I, I didn't, meet anyone of color until i was in secondary school you know and even then it was like one girl and and i don't think i ever got a chance to speak to her and didn't meet anyone who was gay until i went to uni i'm from a very small small village so like i think just seeing films with with real ethnic diversity that doesn't seem forced i really really was drawn to him he was he was my favorite character i remember it very vividly i suppose my my it's not even an issue i think the film gets away with it just I do too. but it's a, it's close are we in spike lee territory we are close to the magical negro trope i think just a little bit if, if only because john coffee yeah i got some coffee vibes yeah and that was the, again one film against another a character we are in different we are in different spaces here but i think it's just unfortunate i don't think there's any malevolence there's no sinister intent 
it's just quite unfortunate that um, because I, you're right, these are all adults. But I think even when you when you have that fantastical element, so you do need a degree of childlike wonder yes. and acceptance yeah. and mm-hmm. perspective, kind of in order to bridge the gap between gritty realism of people literally losing their 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 homes and fantastical alien creatures. I'm so glad we get to know nothing about them. I don't really want to know anything about them apart from the fixers. Um, but that needs bridging. And Harry is that bridge. It's just unfortunate, really, that um, it's kind of made me hypersensitive. So watching it first time now, had I seen it when you, you guys saw it, maybe I don't respond to it in the same way. Mm. But I was just kind of aware. I was like, ah, it's a shame that it, it, it's just a shame that he seems yeah, so um, so close to that particular trope that's why something when it becomes a trope becomes an issue a character representation uh, as a single character representation if it feels cohesive with the rest of the film is less likely to be considered you know in some way offensive i i wouldn't i guess if it weren't for the fact that that trope has been identified and i think the green mile being the most prominent version is that the one it. he had a, an issue with that's the one that he spoke out about i would have thought so and and but i guess i i agree with with what um with what matt said about like we had we grew up in roughly the same place so we were in an extremely white working class borderline farm slash failing mining <laughs> community so you know we grew up on that kind of like gotcha. land between that and, you, could, uh, you could do with some fixes <laughs> yourselves couldn't you probably yeah um yeah. <laughs> so this this idea of you know the way that the city was represented i mean the fact that marissa's uh boyfriend comes back just carousing in spanish with he may as well have been wearing a sombrero but i you know it's it's at what point does shorthand become offensive and i guess that that's that's you know that that's always going to be an issue that you have and the the 80s you could tell that all of these representations were being done with a certain amount of um care and attention and you know carlos being a uh a hispanic young man you know talking about uh, the reason he's doing it is that he says he's smart he's got ideas and he wants to get out of here and he sees you know carrying out these terrible tasks on behalf of a rich white guy who doesn't care about him being the only chance he has to get out it- that was really refreshing well at empire magazine were very critical about him being hispanic and being the st- stereotypical vandal at the time and I, and i i thought that was a misreading i thought it was refreshing to see his arc go through but i guess that's that's always the issue when you know it, it's fine if one character coherently makes sense within the the setting of the film that they're in it becomes offensive when every character is represented in the same way. We were just talking about Short Circuit 2. Isn't there a scene in Short Circuit 2 where there's like a Hispanic gang and they all spray paint him and kick his head in? Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh they give him uh, uh, like a bullets and a, a mohawk. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're in National Lampoon's Chevy Chase, roll up your windows territory, aren't you? That's the thing. Yeah. But that it's true though, isn't it? And uh, I'm in total agreement with you, Patrick and Devlin. And let me just, let me just state for the, for the fact that I don't think 
the film is is falling into the mud. I'm not going to say I don't think that all this. I'm going to put a metal. I'm going to put a metal mohawk on me. I don't feel. Like, I don't feel like I have to qualify that. Although the last time, yeah, yeah. Oh no, I was. They they put a mohawk on me too. <laughs> I think the film gets like gets a pass. I don't think it is. I just think it's one of those ones where you you raise it. But Carlos, for sure, you know, it was so refreshing to see some dimensions to his character that he wasn't just some you know hoodlum i think he's very good if anything he then highlighted the one of the one of the big issues i had not big issues but one of the things where i was like oh they could have they could have just upped the ante a bit is make your uh real estate mogul clamp like character super villainous it's very cold-hearted though in a way i would make him sniveling foaming yeah. at the mouth evil that's a problem it's it's like he's almost doesn't register and then you've got the guy who drives the fancy car mm. and he's like that's supposed to be our satisfying you got fired i was yeah. like not that's really the problem no. there's too many go-betweens there's no big bad is there well he should have been an arsehole he should have been like like um like the worst kurt Foller. You know, like uh, um, the really kind of just all William Atherton. We were talking about this on the last episode of like GW great, Bailey. GW, exactly. You need a great 80s scumbag in there. You need like a real like piece of shit. It was Carlos that registered as the villain when I was a kid with the axe, the axe scene. The axe scene, and again, Matt, of it burns imagery when he hits yeah. the father and the father yeah. being on the floor and struggling. Ah, oh, man, I was in bits as a kid. That was mm. awful to see and really horrifying. It's a peculiar film in a sense that, that it's it doesn't really register as a kid's film now, like when you look back. It's peculiar, but it was sort of billed as that, wasn't it? Yeah, he took too much pleasure in smashing the pl- joint up, so it kind of felt like it counted against the fact that he feels like he has to do this in order to get out. I get the desperation, but that's where you need the big bad who controls him to really have all the responsibility and accountability I'm for all for actions. it as well it's supposed to be a nasty scene it's supposed to be a bit yeah, yeah. it's supposed to yeah I think Michael, Michael Carmine's very good in this um, and I, I like his last scene where you think he's gone full arc and a retribution mm. when he brings flowers and chocolates to, to Faye in the hospital but it does it's not a fairy tale ending for him mm. and mm. I think that there's another grounded aspect Gully and I think that's done really well Mr. Raleigh I brought these here for your wife. Some donuts. Hey, look who's here. It's Bobby. He came back. How about that? Yeah, he's he's good in it. He's good in it. The one I think you mentioned before that, I mean, it's a shame as well because he's uh, you know we share we share Greek heritage. But um, the actor who plays uh, Mason, I called him when I was watching it. I was like, he's Poundland a, Michael Douglas. Well, you say Poundland Michael Douglas. I think of uh, like a, a mochaccino. He's sort of a fake chino. Uh, Pacino for me, um, oh, but without 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 the coffee. Yeah. Oh, well, you mean Al Pacino? Yeah. Like a Dunkachino. Yeah, no, but I didn't want to. I didn't, I didn't want to do the Dunkachino joke, so I thought, well, Mochaccino, which is you know, a bit of chocolate in there. I, I don't really remember the show at all. 
but he looks like every cast member in my head of what the TV show 30-something would have been. <laughs> if I remembered that show, it would just be, he represents that, you know, just kind of like... Or all of them yeah. mashed into one yeah. physical form. He should have been in Party of Five, shouldn't he? That's what you're, that's what you're well, saying. When he, when he gets electrocuted on the roof, he looks like Barry Gibb. <laughs> I'm coming, Chaka. He wants to get, you know, he he happily gets involved in accepting of everyone and, and that community feel. And he's like, "Well, this is amazing. This is amazing." And, and, like, and uh, I am kind of glad that he. It's weird. He, him, her attraction to him is a bit weird to me because he does let her down, and he has got weird sensibility of of the, of the fixers. And yeah, but his attraction to her too. She's a, she's pregnant by another man. He's not empathetic to her, though, like, and understanding that she's pregnant and just watching a stillbirth and understand why she'd be so upset by that, you know, and and I think that's a really interesting turn in his character. Yeah. So then yeah. after that, why is she still attracted to him? And it's seemingly that she wants to be his subject to be painted. It's, there's an allure there. It doesn't quite work. It is possibly just a case of maybe it's one of the few parts of the film where it was... Oh, the the figures tell us that we need an insert character. We mm. can't just have a film where the protagonist, the lead, is seventy eight years old. You know, who's, yeah. Where's the where's the broad appeal? And you're not going to have kids in it, so you know you do need like a like a cocoon has. You know, if you think about it. Gutenberg is just on a side plot. He's yeah, not he's really... on a boat hanging around. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't <laughs> integrate with the, with the elderly characters until right at the end. But, mm. you know, you do have a kind of, just a, just a guy, you know. Is that a white generic, mailbox that just needs to Generic ticking? white guy. Exactly. Yeah. He does, um, um, he does have the a scene that I do quite like though, between him and Marissa when he, he says, maybe they've come to, to, for you, you know, they're here for you. And she says, maybe they've come here for you. And I, I do like the idea that, and he's an artist, you know, a dreamer, a painter, whatever you want to associate that with. And it does, that did bring me a nice idea of the film and, and the theme of it. What, what is a miracle to an individual? And what is, um, what does it mean for, for you? What does it mean to the audience watching this and the individuals in the building? And I did like that kind of, again, it's the amazing story, war and, un, uh, war, awe and wonder uh, of the, the spectacular. And it leaves space. It doesn't beat you over the head with what that thing is, does it? It doesn't Absolutely. Really no, it doesn't answer out. it really yeah. either. We get the, the building fixed at the end uh, and a community come together and they've kind of... We were just talking about Magnolia a minute ago. What, we just talked about the... the uh, what do the frogs uh, just, mean? Just, just, oh, no, don't say frog. Maybe If you haven't seen it, you're... Uh, Yo, but, yeah, sorry what, about that. What does it all mean, Basil, uh, in mm. terms of the frogs? There's so many characters in that movie and we it's never spelled out but it means something different to everyone in, in that mm-hmm. film just to round off on mason though i do think that um having be an artist but also be the person who takes everything the most analytically and be the one who's the least sensitive to what's going on around him i think could have maybe been pushed in another direction that you know maybe it was something that got a little lost uh, which is that maybe his his art was stalling out because he wasn't able to get over himself and he wasn't able to kind of open up to something bigger. And between meeting the aliens and meeting Marissa, he found like a muse that actually created it. But that wasn't really 
in the script. That's a that's a lot to try and pack into a film that is really trying to have a tight ninety. And, and it gives a, a it gives a little it. conflict, you know, yeah. and it, it adds a, it adds another perspective of someone and and the yeah. cynicism of the eighties uh, of certain people and and mm. even Lacey and yeah. yeah. I guess it's just that you know his it. it He's embodying a lot of different things all at once. I don't, I don't think when you're watching or when I was watching it, rather, I didn't, it wasn't something that particularly clocked. It was more kind of thinking about it after the fact when you see, you know, how well all these other pieces fit together and how perhaps his character wasn't quite as put through the, 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 the ringer as everyone else's. Patrick, you talked about wanting to discuss um, puppetry and uh, mm. uh, its use uh, in, in a film. Uh, I assume you posit- you have like a positive reaction to yeah. the design and you the way that they- so well. the way that they're used because uh, just to say one of my favourite elements um, was the the whole sequence on the on the stairs where they're trying to teach the the little the little learn how to fly. I thought that was just it's wonderfully cute and full of personality and it's it's strange, isn't it? How uh, you know pair of goggle eyes and um, a, 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 some kind of uh, pointing towards a mouth means that you just immediately go, ah, friendly and loving. I like it. Oh, I love him. You know, I love him. Uh, and a, 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 another calling to me is I watched the Obi-Wan Kenobi series recently and the, there's a droid in that called Lola. Um, and it looks exactly like one of the fixes for me. I saw it like, whoa, that has to be influenced from batteries not included. And, and another thing that recently reminded me of this and why I wanted to watch it. And, I think one of the masterstrokes and Spielberg's influence on the film, we talk of like the auteur and, and whose voice. Spielberg really encouraged uh, ILM and the designers, and we, we have Ralph McQuarrie's work here, um, to have puppets on set for the actors to interact with where where possible. I think that's really important. And it, this, when the when the father takes the light off Harry, it's, oh, it's just amazing. And it's really like fantastic. And then recharging and those little interactions are great. And I, I love them. You said that the eyes there and Brad Bird going on to Pixar, you can tell maybe he took some of this wonderful stuff to, with him. And, and it's all about the eyes um, and everything. One of the clever things I thought they did was use POV quite a lot. Uh, they used POV. So you didn't have to see the, the craft all the time you're seeing its perspective uh so there's some stuff uh, i love the bit where it enters her bedroom for the first time flies around her in bed and uh and th- again talk about things that are seared into your memory the bit where he's snoring and he's pushing it away with his breath uh as he's asleep in the chair that i, I remember that vividly um and they, also they have lights so when you're seeing from the the POV of the craft, the the lights are fully integrated and they're they're lighting the characters, and that really helps you. The actors are looking into the lens and they're being lit by it, and it cements the illusion of it. It's a subtle but quite obvious thing to do, but I appreciated it and it helped me to go along with the trick. I love that some of it's puppetry, some of it's stop motion and and overlay and. I, I, I think it's really well done and you can see that they've chosen the right form and practice for each scene. But there's one of my favorite bits is the father fixer in the kitchen, flipping the burgers 
And I can tell that it's someone holding the flipper doing the flip with the, with the, um, the father on another stick. And it's, it's a very simple gesture over shoulder of, of a fixer over shoulder, but it, it's very effective and choosing the right practice in each scene is great. And of course, Gally, we then get the, the children who are cute as fuck and amazing wide even wider eyed than the parents and the small versions and um it it's no wonder that i think it's the importance of a character design and they're so beautifully designed in practicality i i, I there's a moment of the puppetry as well that I really like when Mason goes to inspect them and we get a lovely little rotoscopes animation of the, the innards, the insides and the workings. But the father, is it the father or the mother? Um, slaps his hand away with a handmade thing from his own coffee pot. And it, and that, exp- that he, he then uh, gets rid of the hand because it served its purpose, but the practicality and the, the almost biology of it, it they do feel biological in their, mecha- in their mechanisms and, it's it it really they're really emotive they're very i love them i think they're great when i was a kid i remember watching a behind the scenes making of documentary about a disney animation i don't remember which this would have been the 90s possibly it was the lion king and it talked about how um in they would take the animators to the zoo and they would make them do movement classes and they would um they would make them study nature documentaries and they would they would bring animals into the studio so that they could spend time physically in the same space as them so i the the idea to have the fixers essentially act like birds like some kind of exotic bird um it it really helps audiences kind of marry that sort of the the unfamiliar of the idea of you know creatures coming down from space made out of junk metal but immediately making them something familiar and recognizable um and it just means that you can just borrow you can borrow so liberally the idea that you know we understand exactly what's happening when they have their mating dance and the interactions with a lot with the lot action elements you know again that there are you know lots of different tricks but even just as simple as there is an inanimate model in a burger mm-hmm. won't need to come to life you kind of know what it is and yeah. harry holding what is just a piece of probably plastic maybe metal and its eyes light up that's all you need you don't need anything more elaborate and mm. i suppose this is where we kind of go back into old man shouting at clouds but if, if it was uh, if it was done purely using cgi now which would be the cheaper and quicker way to do it um, you lose those elements of like tactileness that kind of go. Oh, it's almost, it's like a magic trick and... to be able to use different things, and that's yeah. gone away now yeah. because everything's immediately solved by CG, and you don't really have well, to consider it too much. Some of the physical shots on here, Matt, of um, father and mother flying around, and I—they are. They look physical, and I don't think yeah. they're overlaid or it's, tactile. It's we always say, don't we? The best stuff. Yeah, but how, I couldn't figure it out. Like, have they airbrushed out something? I don't know. And I could see on, so I watched it twice. I watched the film twice, once on, on my regular telly and once on my shit bedroom telly that I got from Argos for like 40 quid. And, uh, it's my, it's my, uh, my 27 inch bush. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, because of the bit rate of the, of the DVD not being particularly high, cause it is, I had it on standard dvd i wasn't watching it on streaming and i was watching it through quite a cheap television 
um you could see especially in the sequence of the um the the fixers flying through the window in the dark mm-hmm. you could see the aura around the um the the, the flying creatures you could see where they had matted oh deposited it. i didn't see it at all but on, a, but on my actual telly i couldn't see it because the um the the the, the picture quality is much better on here hey i watched it on a blu-ray 4k tv i didn't notice it at all. Or maybe they've cleaned it up between the dvd and the blu-ray yeah i also i think that it's one of those things that actually comes out it's only going to be a very because if you're watching it on television you wouldn't be able to see it because the definition mm. would be different if you're watching it on vhs you wouldn't be able to see it because of mm. the vhs distortion by the time you get up to blu-ray on a proper tv you can't see it so i think it's only if you watch it on standard dvd on a slightly shit tv don't buy crap the uh, um, here, right? But that, which is, but it was cool. Like I, I, I liked seeing it on both because it's like you can see how physically difficult that must have been. Because mm. what they were basically doing was having to kind of basically mask out the, um, you know, they were so they were shooting actual puppets, probably mm-hmm. Star Wars style, like in you know against the the, the backdrop, mm-hmm. and then just and then just matting it over the top. But they they match the lighting really well, I think, on most of the sequences. Was it the scene where it flies around her in bed? Yeah, uh, and and when it flies up to him and he blows it away with his exhale. One of the most incredible shots is when the mother goes down to see the the broken father, and there's a puddle on the floor, and you see the reflection of the puddle up on the underbelly lights, mm. and I was like, wow, this is incredible! It looks it looks amazing. I think my favourite one is when they're all together in the sky, you know, towards the end where they all appear together in the sky. And and also I felt like some of the design, they'd obviously looked at close encounters with some of the some of the lighting around it. But it, yeah, terrific. It doesn't matter if, if, if it's taken elements from, from different sources. The fact is they do bring it to life. They do become real characters. And that is the trick. Seen plenty of films where I just don't, you know, do not believe what I'm seeing. Um, this, this, I didn't have that. I didn't have that reaction at all. As I say, my my main my main issue really with it is that the the emotional beats of which there are plenty in this, there are just a few where it just didn't quite hit me in the way that I know that they wanted it to hit me. So you're thinking um, like solid fundamentals, you know, putting up good numbers. But they don't have the 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 X factor that's going to make them a legend. Yeah, I think so. And I I think the other one I wrote down, Patrick, is that some some films need a star and other films don't need a star. I wonder mm-hmm. if this film, and maybe this mm. is just me speaking because you guys clearly watched it loads, and and I'm sure lots and lots of our listeners have seen this many many times. But for for long tail kind of staying in the zeitgeist batteries not included feels like it's not it's not there i wonder if a star would have helped it even even an elderly star i even thought about so got, well, no, I, I, no, got I, no no i was thinking like you know frank and uh the, the actor who plays frank uh is great but if that's Ooh, jack you... lemon or walter no, I, I, I will disagree with no, that no, I'm, just, I'm, the, ju- I'm just throwing it out there you can disagree not for, okay not for me but maybe the star <laughs> is the director that they needed the extra element for i still i still kind of get kind of hairs standing up a little bit when matt's shot there when the whole, all of them come down to fix it mm. I, I still, that really works for me or, or alternatively this was never going to be that film because it's not so that it's standing on the shoulders of, of others but because it's so similar 
you normally just have to pick you know you go to the the you go to the source material don't you which is not et's clearly not like wholly wholly original but the idea is that for the 80s for this decade you know when whenever they curate best of lists maybe batteries not included doesn't get on there because there is another version of this film that is considered better in the kind of in a uh an era that was packed quite quickly with a lot of real classics that maybe being an extremely well-made competent example of a of a of a time and, and place doesn't allow it to stand out it's still on tv every now and then and but i'm i'm surprised i think when i meet people like you galley who had not seen it i guess i'm always surprised when it hasn't cut through and it sort of and you end up recalibrating because in my head it was just a film that everyone sort of knew and liked but the more i talk to people the more i realize that that is not across the board it's not it's not a universally recognized you know people didn't see this in the same numbers that they saw the goonies or or, or even in a space and that's because that's another one that maybe you have to jar people's memory into inner space they it's mm-hmm. not everyone has inner space sitting at the front of their head waiting to go or even though i think several of us do yeah another one i would say uh, like a, of an amblin staple and i would say that jeff daniels is not like a superstar but everyone's seen arachnophobia everyone saw arachnophobia and everyone remembers the bit where the spider comes out of the nose it's funny isn't it because i can't i can't quite <laughs> i i i, I I hear exactly what you're saying, Gally, and I kind of I do agree with you. I just I can't tell you what that ingredient is. Mm. I don't know. Do you, I, I, I think I agree with Patrick because I, I, I've been very positive, but I do have issues with it. And I don't know. You know, when Gally says, "Is there a better version of this film?" I don't know if there is because th- this is so specific to to yeah. what they in, intended. If you put Joe Dante in, for my money, it's it. it he's a better director, obviously, but. It might be a very darker. Yeah, it's going to get wackier. It's going to get slapstick. It's going to it's going to lose a lot of the um, the yeah yeah. Well, Matt, I am seeking a miracle on Eighth Street. Tell me what Siskel and Ebert thought of this one. Uh, What what do the what do Critics Corner say before it got knocked down by some conglomerate in New York? (laughs) Uh, Siskel said it was a bad cross between ET and Cocoon. when a movie is a cross between two other successful movies, it often has nothing special to offer. And that's true here. Uh, listening to him talk was like watching a scene from the film, like a doddery old fool. He shows <laughs> clips like the, the, the smashing of the watch and the little visitors fixing it and then remarks, not too funny. Uh, he also referred to the hamburger as a hamburger sandwich, which I felt was unacceptable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with, some fre- with some fresh fried potatoes. That's a mystery science theater yeah. 3000. He's straight out of the 50s. Um, he also said that it's too slow. The pacing was off. And he blamed Spielberg's production company for the recycled E.T. fairy tale um, with more slapstick and less heart. He said it was a comic book with the best pages torn out, an empty story full of forced holiday warmth. Heaven forbid, eh? Uh, he said, utterly routine, predictable stereotypes, 
the old couple and the ethnics was one of his quotes. Oh dear. Uh, (laughs) Ebert disagreed, came to our rescue a little bit. He, uh, but every time he tried to get a retort in, it was shoved back down his throat. Uh, as Siskel just doubled down on everything that he was saying. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit closer to Ebert this week. He praised the special effects. He said there was a lot of good feeling and nice laughs and it's better than most of the stuff out there. He gave it three stars out of five in his written review. Where do you want to go? You want to go to Mazza at the New York Times? Mazza. Give us a bit of Maz. Yeah. Uh, everything in the film has been designed in toy makers terms. That includes the human characters who are adults only in the way an eight-year-old might imagine them. Children may enjoy this, but their adult escorts will have a harder time. Batteries Not Included isn't the kind of film that prompts questions of any kind. The time for this brand of fantasy may have come and gone. Uh, weirdly, I I don't agree with a lot of that, but also I do entirely see where those criticisms have come from. But a lot of that is is you know is more harshly termed and less kind of less charitable versions of what we've said, which is you know it, it isn't a film that was destined to kind of change anyone's mind or, or change anyone's life or do anything beyond be a very pleasant and entertaining film. And I guess it depends whether these critics see that as a lack of ambition and whether they take them to task for that um maybe it's the fact that we've seen in the decades since we've seen such fucking low energy and low effort um fair come out that has tried to do the same thing that maybe we're more charitable to it because you know at least at least these people tried yeah i think that's fair and actually maybe maybe uh i need to start thinking about the way that i react to stuff that uh comes out now with a similar you know trying to trying to think of that mindset and go actually am i just speaking in the terms that the critics in the 80s were speaking in the terms of these films maybe that's the case maybe i should give things more of more of a chance um or be uh, well fucking salty about it and give them less of a chance well I, I would like everyone <laughs> to give them less of a chance we we deserve more is what i'm saying we deserve better for sure e- ebert to end on something positive for patrick here ebert said uh, cronin and tandy rescue the movie from looking all together like a retread and the sources do their part too designed by industrial light and magic the visual effects wizards the sources swoop and vibrate and blink and purr and even have children. Batteries Not Included is a sweet, cheerful and funny family entertainment. Can I read a review from Letterboxd? From, oh, you're going to lower Z- the tone after that. Okay, go I am, then. yeah, from, from Zombie. Uh, it says, I really can't explain what happened in this movie. Robots fix stuff, then they fuck, then they shit out robot babies. What the hell? Three out of five. So. <laughs> Three out of five. <laughs> you loved it. Okay. <laughs> well, let's see how much you remembered the film because it's time for a pop quiz, hot shot. A reminder of the score. Matt's on eight, Dev's on eight, Gally's on five. Let me hear your buzzer, Matthew. Dance me around, Papa. That was so unexpected. I don't know what I was expecting, but that was great. Yeah, I went fake. I did it. <laughs> What's your buzzer, Gally, please? This is the 80s, Mason. Nobody likes reality anymore. Very good. <laughs> topical. Ooh, topical. And Christopher, what's your buzzer, please? Crazy, my ass. Right, question one. Question one. There's two answers to this. What does Faye name the first-born fixer twins? 
crazy, my ass. Devlin. Flotsam and Jetsam. Flotsam and Jetsam is well correct. Well, well done, done. well remembered. Question two. Oh, two answers to this as well. Question two. What numbered addresses is the cafe and the apartment building? Crazy, my ass. Devlin's going to go for it. I'm going to... 129 and 131. I'm afraid not. Sorry. Dance me around, Papa. Matt. <laughs> Uh, 672. You guys are just fucking ripping it. You You don't know. It's written under Riley's Cafe on the Mm. glass uh, artwork. It's in the tiles. It's in the the tiles as well. Matt's established, so if it's a moving image, we don't read. (laughs) Do you want the answer? (laughs) It's 815 and 817. Points there. And then third and final question. <clears throat> bit wordy. Harry recites things he hears on the TV, especially slogans from the commercials, including this one. Don't leave home without it. Which is a slogan for which company? Crazy, my ass! Devlin? Don't leave home without it. It's like American Express. Wow, bingo! Well done! Oh. <laughs> what a score! Uh, yeah, Devlin wins there two to nothing. And you take the lead overall, Devlin. Oh, nine. more powerful than you assholes could ever possibly imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. Okay, no, well, thank you very much, Patrick. Right, so Devlin, what do you think? Recommending this to our listeners? You know what? I am, I am going to recommend it to our listeners, although I think Matt, you laid out the people that you would recommend it to and slash would not recommend it to. And I do think that it's quite a narrow recommend. I think that once again, we have probably managed to find a film that would appeal to largely us. <laughs> and, as in people probably of our specific generation, it has the 80s nostalgia that we all love. It's an 80s nostalgic movie that maybe people have either not seen or haven't spent as much time with if they've if they've squozen all they can squeeze out of the teat of stuff like back to the future and back to the future and uh you know all the other big 80s hits and you want something that that, (laughs) (laughs) you want something that hits the same that that hits in the same way but isn't something that you've that you've rinsed to death it's quite a, a very wonderful low stakes watch and also probably something that you know if if you do have to spend any amount of time with your with your folks or uh, or an extended family kind of thing, this is a really wonderful film to sit down and watch with them because I think that it, it would be all but impossible to be offended by it, and yet it's not completely bland and milk toast. Um, I do think that younger audiences would possibly struggle with a, a differently paced family entertainment but i think i do actually think that older audiences would really appreciate it you know these days a lot of films are in the uk cinema are being diverted towards the gray pound because they realize that they're the only ones who got any pounds in the pockets only only people who've got any pounds and they got a lot of time on their ends and the the films like this will will kind of give them you know it's it's not empty calories there's 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 real kind of feeling in the film but it is at the end of the day an extremely well executed piece of cinema from people who know exactly what they're doing Mm. and i think that that can be you know that can be enough sometimes so a bit of an odd one wouldn't watch it on your own i don't know if that would really you know i mean you can 
maybe it's a, a, an Overwatch, maybe like a nice, you know, pleasant Sunday afternoon hangover watch. Um, but otherwise, yeah, save it up for the next time you have a slightly awkward family get together and you want everyone to shut up for 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, so specific. <laughs> Very specific. Yeah. What about you, Matt? It's got a sprinkling of Spielbergian gold dust, but not quite enough for me. But it did still feel like him. Uh, not like an imposter, but like a slightly diluted version. So a gentle, nostalgic rewind. Uh, that's really interesting that you brought up the... I've never heard the grey pound before. But uh, the idea of old people being into it, I'd never, never even crossed my mind. I'm so ignorant. But yeah, it, it absolutely could be a recommend for the older generation. When was the last time you saw the elderly depicted this way? Like it probably is Cocoon in this. And uh, yeah, uh, I found the plotting quite peculiar. I understood why everything was happening, but I wondered if there was a way for this to be more penetrating and a bit clearer and a bit more streamlined in spite of it being the, the tight 90 that we've talked about i wondered what it was saying to us but again we've sort of defined that it's not a film that spells it all out uh you do have to put your own experiences in and draw your own conclusions um without negating some of the criticisms um i i, I would like to say i was quite cut up by it at points um particularly Jessica Tandy crying at the end. Uh, she knows it's not Bobby, but she's reconciled. She's changed as a character. Um, that's a classic thing in screenwriting literature that you're supposed to do. But when you do it well, it it's very true. Uh, the idea that she has mental decay, the building is falling apart, doesn't work properly. The, the location and character is tied well. Uh, I think it's a sweet concept and film. Um, but the idea that, that things, whether they be items or buildings or relationships that cannot be mended, can be fixed by these things. And there's something really moving about that as a story. But as I mentioned earlier, it's a melancholy thing because, of course, it is fantasy and life, unfortunately, doesn't work that way. Um, so I was super emotional all the way through. Um Again, yeah, Devlin's hungover recommendation might be a good one because it might bring some of your emotions to the surface. Um, but I wondered if there's a reason why I hadn't revisited this one. And I think it could be that it's a bit too much thematically for me. It didn't seem like a, a joyful thing to return to in, in light of some things that have happened to me personally. Um, but um, I think... Um, it has a lot to say about kindness and symbiotic relationships where we can all help each other and get something out of it. And we can be strong with the help of others. I think that's a positive message. Uh, but because the machines can, can ultimately fix themselves, I didn't feel the weight of it the way I did when I was a kid. I felt like there was always a get out clause there. Um, I was definitely more spellbound by the story when I was a youngster. And the threat of it, you know, we talked about the axe and Carlos in that scene. Uh, it's brave to tell a story with older protagonists. You very rarely see it. Um, but unfortunately, it renders the film a little old fashioned. And I'd hesitate to say a little bit boring for, for kids of today. 
I, I don't think I can recommend it to the to the modern modern audiences, but nostalgic revisitors proceed at your own risk. I think um, I'm going to fly my little spaceship to Galley. I think I'm going to I'm going to continue this Greyhound theme uh, and say that this is better than Eighty for Brady and Last Vegas and the Bucket List. <laughs> so there you go. If you're yeah, if you're of a kind of elder elder or older demographic even, um, then I think, yeah, I think battery's not included. I'm going to echo what Matt said, though. I think I would struggle to... I struggle to find a space for it, for a um, a younger audience. Like I would think about Short Circuit a lot after I watched it, and Wally and kind of their connections. And I think people can make that jump back into short circuit, despite some of the problems of short circuit and some of the things that are be super sensitive in short circuit. I think it's an easier thing to kind of gravitate towards if you're a, a, a kind of a younger viewer now, because it's January 5, you know, it's great. Um, whereas this has kind of got like a bittersweet tone and that bittersweetness, I think, is very specific to a certain, a certain, just a certain demographic. And I'm just not sure if you're going to have that as a, as a younger audience, especially when you think about the awe and wonder would have been in the effects and the way that these things interact. And actually a modern audience might very well look at this and think it looks a bit arcane. So, um, so that's where the disconnect is. So I'm going to recommend it, Patrick, but very specifically um, as Devlin did. And I actually, you said Sunday afternoon, I'm not always hungover on a Sunday afternoon, but definitely a Sunday afternoon watch. You know, replace this. If you were watching Beethoven this weekend again, um, or Turner and Hooch, you can you can put batteries not included on instead because um, it will perfectly service that Sunday afternoon vibe. So, yep, it's a it's a, s- a slight recommend from me, but it comes with it comes with caveats. Patrick, you want to fix it for us, will you? Matt, you said you may struggle to get into that kind of. Younger mindset to watch it. That's maybe why you enjoyed it more when you were younger. I, I, I am a child anyway, and I didn't have a problem with that. And easily just, I found it so comforting how quickly I was enamored by it on the rewatch now and how easily I took to it. And I, it really did take me away on a little adventure for an hour and 47 minutes. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't, um, I'm not ignorant to the fact of all the problems. Like my biggest problem is Mason. I, I don't think he's that good a character overall at all. And I do see how this is a film maybe of the eighties and of a time, but I was trying to, I asked about the modern audience cause I was trying to figure about younger people looking at this from a perspective of the underdog and a community set up, against the corporate fat cats and like the gentrified austerity and gentrification of an area and that, that greed and they, you know, they kind of rise up and against them, they stand for something and they, they love and feel and the thematics of the film really took away. I took away with, and I think the film does a really good job of, uh, it's funny how animation does this over the years and in live action, how wonderful to see something deliver 
complex human emotions to, to, to young, a younger audience through the means of the fixers. We, we have death and conception, birth, stillbirth, uh, the, the grieving of a, a lost child and the fear of losing a family member. And it's all, all wrought throughout the whole film. And I think it's done really well, actually. The performances we spoke about, and that's where that hinges on the storytelling is very economical. And the, I, I like the simplicity of, a, of the script, really. There's a playfulness, a sweetness. And I, I, if I were to criticise this film, I'd feel quite dirty that I was offending something so pure. And I was very entertained. And I... <laughs> I'd like to think, I really would like to think that if I saw it for the first time now, that I would have, that fantastical nature of it and awe and wonderment would have swept me up. And I, I do believe in that. And, but I also believe that maybe this is a film that is something I would see in the Radio Times at Christmas or at Easter and go, oh, yeah. I'd love to watch that now. This is the right time and place. This is a family film and at a family time. And rather than recommend it as, you know, like best film of all time uh, or something like that. I think it's a good film. I, I think I took to it a lot better than you guys did. I do recommend it um, with caveats that you said, because I, um, I understand them all. I just uh, think I liked it. More. Thank you very much, Patrick. Right. Where can our listeners find batteries not included? Not many places. Uh, you're going to have to pay for it, Gully, on um, your usual means. I got a nice Blu-ray, and it does, does look pretty good. It's transferred well. The Great Pound, I mean, they've got more than a quid, I think. So how much are we talking for a purchase? <laughs> big Asda quid. Big Asda for a pound for it. That's a DVD. It's not on for... I didn't, did I say on 4K? I don't remember. But the, the Blu-ray I got was five ninety nine. Uh, no special features, though, or anything, which is a shame. There's nothing currently available in Korea, so it would have to be a physical media purchase. If you're in the UK, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Apple, Google, YouTube, and you can buy it on Sky Store, but there's nothing for free. Americans, uh, there's a new one. It's called Plex, and it says it's streaming for free on there. Do you know what that is, Deb? Yeah, Plex is uh, it's it's fast. It's a free ad supported television. So um, it's a uh, an online repository of films that you watch, and every now and then it pops in an ad break for you. It's pretty cool. Uh, they have a huge amount of old Roger Corman stuff. Uh, I will say that I tried it with a VPN and it didn't work for me. But give it a go okay. if you're not if you're in America or not, uh, and you can rent it in the usual places: Directv, uh, Voodoo, <coughs> Java. We shall say our goodbyes. But before we do that, Devlin, I'm expecting Hello. some kind of merchandise. Uh, we haven't we haven't quite franchised into um, poise or um, I'm sure that is can we a, have action a, figures of us? That would be good. An Amblin logo T-shirt would be nice. Is there a, what 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 are those pop heads things again? What are they called? Pop head. Funko pops. Funko. Pop is there a Funko pop of batteries not included? There probably is, isn't there? Probably one of Frank, which is an old man. That's it. With a card. Just an old man. Yeah. Yeah. That's Frank from Batteries Not Included. Give us your money, you idiots. These yeah. people are multi-millionaires. They've repurposed the Kurt Russell thing for, and it's Mason from Batteries Not Included. There you go. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks very much for that. <laughs> Al Pacino and Servico. 
also Mason from Barry's <laughs> <laughs> You could just name them all, can't you? Oh, have you got your Serpico Funko Pop? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about... <laughs> your Pacino collection is complete. Right next to my Michael Corleone is my, uh, my cruising one. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I work... I literally work two doors down from the Funko Pop offices, so I am going to kick the doors through on Monday, and I am going to tell them... Give them a list of... Demand a cruising yeah. one. Give me my Hume Cronin. You know, he's, a, <laughs> uh, he's an heir to the Labatt Lager Fortune. Oh. oh. Can cool you get Labatts anymore? I don't know. I assume they still can in Canada. Hmm. Maybe, maybe. And in the Maple Leaf in Covent Garden and nowhere else. Oh, yeah. No, and tell us, uh, tell our listeners where they can, uh, they can purchase merchandise that will bring back memories. You know, you can hit up, uh, rewindmoviecast.com, our website, where we host all of our episodes, previous essays, and various long form writings that we've done over the years. There is a tab up there, shop, that will take you to the T-Mill store, devlindoesdrawing.tmill. Dot com. That's where we sell t-shirts, jumpers, sweatshirts, vests, stickers, tote bags uh, of various films. What I what we like. Um, some rewind movie cast uh, merch is available. Some some nice new designs are in there. But generally speaking, it's a lot of uh, cult cinema and whatnot. It's good. You should go. Cost me money to keep the shop running, so go buy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> also, if you enjoy what we do, please like, share, subscribe, spread the gospel team. Okay, that's what we need to bring more people to the party. Please do that. We appreciate it. Um, we have a listener request coming up soon. Next up, though, for your, you know, this is your homework. <laughs> We're finally going to finish a series. Um, unless, unless they've snuck in another Jaws. Uh, onto the slate and it's being released in the next six months this is our final episode in the jaws series we're going to be looking at jaws 4 the revenge the one where the shark has got an axe to grind do you like (laughs) do you like your ominous strings with a hint of uh delightful caribbean rhythms because if you do <laughs> Do you hear a little steel drum? Basically, the horniest film in the Jaws series, I would suggest as True. well. Um, and and also uh, following on from Barry's not included, more old people being represented as major characters and know? a generic bearded man in the lead role. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> it feels like we're just in the same fucking film. 1987, love it. We will be doing that next. So yes, that's your homework, team. We shall say our goodbyes. Yes. We shall indeed. Thank you for the pick, Patrick. Yes, it thank you. Good chat talking to you about it. Yeah, I, I, um, I really enjoyed revisiting that one. And to think, I've been telling my friends, it's so cool podcasting with you lot. It's Gally in Glasgow, signing out. It's old and depressing. It's Devlin in London. I don't smell no bacon on. It's Patrick in London. Thanks, guys. Look out. Flying pot. Ghost in the garbage. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Days and talk about things important to us like whatever. We'll defuse bombs, walk marathons, and take on whatever together.